Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today I'm very excited because we've got Esther Cohen, who is the nurse practitioner for HIV and sexual health here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And we're going to talk all things sexual health. Welcome, Esther. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. We're excited to have you. And I know this is a topic that Liz is quite excited about. (laughs) (laughs) He's very cheeky, isn't he? (laughs) We'd love to get to know your origin story because in so many of these roles we, we go, I'm making some big assumptions that this wasn't where you started your nursing career thinking you'd end up. That's not an assumption. That's the absolute truth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that's right. Um, yeah, I didn't start uh, my my um, uh, sexual adventures early, I have to say. <laughs> um, I went into nursing when I was 30. Um, I've, I can completed my education at 30 and uh, I was in intensive care for 20 years um, which I loved and then I did my nurse practitioning and unfortunately uh, there it's very difficult to get into nurse practitioning in that area so uh, I went into trauma orthopedics and then primary care and found that I really enjoyed working in the sexual health area so then a job came up at the Royal Brisbane and I went for it. I didn't know that. Yeah. What an interesting pathway. Mm. And now it's we've got you for life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Esther, your number one is what is sexual health and why is it relevant to the bedside nurse? It is indeed. Um, so sexual health is, well, I mean, it, it can be taken in so many different ways. Um, for us and our department, sexual health is um, more to do with infection Um, controlling infection, treating infection, um, stopping infection from spreading further, uh, education um, and it's it's also into the blood-borne viruses that are not necessarily um, STI uh, transmission always um, but it can be so things like hepatitis B and C as well Um, and it's about protecting people and educating and trying to find an environment for people where it's um, a safe place to uh, respond with no judgment. It's funny, isn't it? Because we live in a very sexualized world would be the way I would assess things. You know, like even in across my generation, what you can now see on TV, what you can access with relation to films, pornography, you know, it's a huge market and yet people can't talk about sex. Like what is that? Exactly right. And I've been thinking about this a lot knowing that I was coming on to do the podcast and it's a really interesting fact that sex sells, basically sex and money make the world go round, but people are really, really scared of talking about it or they feel embarrassed or um, they feel judged or they feel the perception 
of being judged. They may not be being judged, but they feel um, isolated maybe in the in the thoughts that they're having or the, um, uh, you know, the se- sexual um, adventures they'd like to have, that sort of thing. And um, it's a really interesting uh, thing that we do come across quite a lot is that you kind of think it would be really fun and really exciting, but actually it's not because there seems to be, unfortunately, a lot of stigma out yeah. there still, especially with our HIV patients. And so if I'm a bedside nurse, why do I need to consider, you know, like I've got so many other things to worry about. How come sexual health has to be part of that assessment? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, because of the effects that these sexual infections can have on a patient, um, there are some uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea, things like that, that, that aren't um, obviously life-threatening. But it should certainly be brought up as part of your assessment with people because quite often, unfortunately, the children have no education in high school. That's what we're finding a lot. Children seem to have no education and it's going back to what we talk about, about nobody wants to talk about sex. Their parents find it a really tricky subject to talk, talk to their children about. And teachers sometimes have barriers in place. Um, and so it's trying to normalise it as part of the healthcare environment that it's okay to ask about these things and it's okay to talk about them. So, for example, if somebody's um, coming in and they've never had a syphilis test, it's a really great time to catch them. Same about same with HIV, same with hepatitis, check their status, um, just to see where they're sitting and, and get it a much more normalised approach um, as you would any other health issue. I, I have no idea about this, but, you know... How often would a GP, just as a routine annual checkup, say to someone who is sexually active and potentially, you know, more adventurous, using your word, how often do they just naturally screen or have conversations, in your opinion, like uh, around sexually transmitted infections? Well, I think um, the medical professional and healthcare professions in their entirety uh, are not immune to having issues with talking about sex. And I, and we do get feedback quite a lot that um, young people especially are rarely asked unless they have symptoms and then they'll, you know, they'll go. But um, I don't, I wouldn't know the statistics on that one, but I would say those statistics would be very low, um, especially in the groups of um, people who have sex with the opposite sex. I would suggest, you know, uh, when I worked in primary care, if there was a young gentleman coming in who had sex with the opposite sex uh, and he was coming in for a stubbed toe or some, something like that, I would ask him when he last had an STI screen and more often than not, he would never have had one in his life. I think this leads us beautifully into your second point, which is most STIs or sexually transmitted infections have no symptoms. So I'm very curious, given that we think that most people don't talk about this. First of all, like what are what remain the most common sexually transmitted infections? And if they have no symptoms, how on earth do you know you have one? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea remain our num- top two. Um, they do have symptoms occasionally, um, and that's usually pain when you pee, uh, discharge, all the lovely stuff. But uh, most of the time they don't have any symptoms and the only way you can tell is through screening or if somebody that you've um, uh, had sexual contact with has then themselves contracted symptoms and then they go and get 
treated and, and tested. And so then they're a contact and they'll get a phone call saying that. But otherwise, um, there isn't many ways of telling. Same with um, HIV. Some people can um, get uh, some sort of symptoms. They might have a flu-like um, illness or unfortunately, if they go undetected for a long time, then they get very ill. But more often than not, they have very, very few symptoms. And the only way we can tell is through testing. So there's chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV. What other things should we be thinking about or have knowledge on? So um, there's trichomoniasis, which is uh, another nice one. Um, There's also bacterial vaginosis and thrush. Neither of those two are um, STIs, but they do come with symptoms and we do pick them up quite often. Um, And they uh, generally present, well, the uh, bacterial vaginosis is only presented in uh, uh, females, but um, thrush can be male and female, but it's mainly females. So if a man has thrush, can he give thrush to a woman or it's no. not infected? No, not. it's generally not tra- transmitted that way. Really curious, given that we're saying a lot of STIs are asymptomatic or like low clinical symptom load. Um, is there modelling to sort of have any idea of what sort of prevalence of STIs there is in the community. I'm putting you on the spot with that. But like when we're talking epidemiologically, if we're only seeing largely the occasional contact tested person because they've had a known contact test positive and then just some opportunistic encounter proactive screening, do we know what sort of prevalence this is in the community? Um. You have put me on the spot. (laughs) I don't know, but it's a great question. And the truth is, I don't know if anybody knows that. Because if you're not testing, then how would we know? People are, I mean, there's lots and lots of programs out there um, trying to make STI testing more accessible. If we had more funding, more staffing, it'd be fantastic on a Saturday morning to go out and just say, just come and get tested. Do your vaginal swabs and your peas here. It would be brilliant, but unfortunately... That doesn't happen. There are some services where you can um, send off for chlamydia and gonorrhea screening. Um, We do try and promote the asymptomatic screening. We've probably got um, more understanding of um, men who have sex with men's um, rates because um, if they're on PrEP, then we see them every three months um, for asymptomatic screens. So that helps. But uh, trying to get it out to the public of just come in, get yourself tested, it's really quick and easy um, and it's not embarrassing. Um, that's hard. That's a hard message to get across. If it's a vaginal swab, surely that is embarrassing. No, because they do it themselves. Uh. Yeah, there's no evidence um, that uh, a clinician doing it is provides any better service than uh, the person doing it themselves. So we just offer it to them. They can do it in the loo. So if I'm a, a young nurse... Of however I identify and I'm listening to this podcast and I think, oh, I occasionally have unprotected sex. Given it's asymptomatic, why should I care? Like why should I care if I've got a sexually transmitted infection, um, if, I, if it's asymptomatic and it's not causing me problems? Like why, why is it so important to understand if you have an infection? Um, that's another great question. Um, so for... Um, chlamydia and especially for um, females who have chlamydia um, the more often they have it or the longer it's in their system it can lead to infertility um, and it has led uh, to significant cases of infertility Um, and the 
gonorrhea, although it can be asymptomatic, people can clear it. People can clear their own chlamydia as well. Uh, it can lead to longer-term complications as well. Obviously, with the um, HIV and syphilis, it's fairly self-explanatory. But for the hepatitis, um, again, that can lead to long-term liver damage if it's not picked up. Yeah. So even though it's asymptomatic, you want to know. Absolutely. Because it, it can have other health consequences leading down the track. Yes. So something important for us to think about both as healthcare professionals but also as individuals who are having sex. Absolutely. And I guess then the communication impact on um, partners as well because it might manifest differently with them. Yes, absolutely. And they do have um, an, a, a website that's called Let Them Know. So if people are a bit anxious about telling somebody face-to-face, um, they can just put the person's mobile number if they know it um, and j- it, that'll just send them a, a, an anonymous message saying somebody that you've slept with has had... Um, it's a bit old-fashioned saying slept with, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much sleeping going <laughs> no, on. Not much. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that will let them know to go and get tested themselves. And I think that's an, another really great point that... Um, it's really important to try and um, sort of foster this uh, idea of it's a no-blame situation. So uh, men who have sex with men seem to do it really, really well. Um, if if they come in and they've got chlamydia and gonorrhea everywhere, and they say, you know, talk to them about contact tracing, which is really important. And if they know who the person is, they say, oh, yeah, that's no problem. I'll tell them they'll, you know. Because they seem to have more of a understanding that you're going into this. If neither of you are using a condom, this is a consequence, a possible consequence of, of um, having sexual contact. But I, I personally, and this is anecdotal, um, that uh, people who have sex with the opposite sex are much more worried about telling people um, that they do have a, an STI, especially females, yeah. um, because they're worried that they're going to get blamed and you know the slut shaming and that type of thing and when I reference females and males it's important for me to say I'm talking about um the the sex that you were born with it that's uh, irrelevant of gender yep and continue with the path of just assuming absolutely no knowledge in this um I'm going to ask the question so Liz and I separately <laughs> come in <laughs> come into the clinic and uh keen to have a sexual health screening done um, I choose Liz and I because it gives us a male and female sex assigned at birth combo for us to talk through any similarities, differences. So what is the screening process like and um, what uh, what is screened for? That's a really great question. Um, um, it does depend rather on the answers and if uh, you're coming in for a screen for the first time, there are some invasive questions that we ask and it's not because we're nosy and it's not because we're jealous. We just want to know what... Um, what type of sex you're having and who with, so that we know um, how to uh, screen properly and effectively for you. So um, take, for example, if somebody came in and said they were um, a a male who was having sex with females, um, no oral sex, and um, always uses a condom, for example, A, we'd praise him and I'd like to get him a statue made of him in gold because there's not many of those around. Condoms. Um, yes, it's unusual for people to use condoms every time. 
So if they're having sex with um, other women, it would just, for men, as usual, it's a bit easy. And it's just a, uh, the first part of their pee that we need. Um, so it doesn't have to be first thing in the morning. It just needs to be uh, about two hours after they had their last pee, just so that we can catch all the bacteria. And it's just the first part. So they only need to fill up the speci pot about halfway. Um, the females, on the other hand, it's a bit different. Um, they do the vaginal swab because it's more effective at picking up infections um, and a throat swab mainly for blowjobs. Um, that's easier to contract um, through blowjobs. Um, and the men who have sex with men, um, we offer them um, a rectal swab for them to do themselves uh, and uh, throat swabs which we usually do for people because it's quite tricky to get down the back of your throat and a first catch urine and in turn um, anybody that is having um, anal sex then we ask them to do a swab for themselves as well but most of this they can do themselves if they haven't had an HIV test ever um, or syphilis or hep B then we try and get that checked out as well uh, some people are quite scared or think they don't need to um, it's still a massive stigma, but um, we, we just encourage, obviously we don't force anybody to do anything, but if we explain at the beginning, this is why we're asking these questions, because they can be a bit invasive. So it's not a blood test? The HIV and syphilis is a blood test, yeah. Right. From a prevention point of view, are condoms still the greatest way of keeping both partners safe? They absolutely are for everything um, other than HIV. Um, HIV it, Condoms are still excellent to protect you against HIV, but there is also PrEP medication that can prevent it as well. Yeah, terrific. So your number three is syphilis is on the rise. And when I think about syphilis, I think about, you know, the royal family in the 1700s and, you know, how devastating it was. But in saying that, I actually don't know anything about Syphilis. So can you tell us firstly, what is syphilis and why is it suddenly on the rise in the year 2023? Absolutely. So syphilis is, as you rightly pointed out, it's the oldest, um, they used to call them venereal diseases um, after Venus. So it is the oldest of the um, STIs and um, it's a bacterial infection that um, it's a very tricky, they also call it the great pretender because um, it's easily transmitted through ulcers. And um, ulcers just in the genitals? No, so you can get any, any uh, membrane where the syphilis has entered. So uh, quite often we see um, a mouth ulcer um, if they've had oral sex and that's where the syphilis has entered. Um, and quite often it shows itself... Um, if it's going to show itself, it will show itself as an, uh, as an ulcer. That's the at the primary stage. Um, it's, it's painless and people um, tend to sort of look at it and go, oh, I need to get that checked out. And then it disappears within about six weeks. Mm. So then people think, oh, well, that's okay. It's gone. Whatever it was, it's gone. Um, and then the second stage um, is so it can show itself as having a rash all over body rash and a, and a rash on your um, soles of your feet and the palms of your hand. But again, um, it doesn't always show itself. You can get temperatures and things, but it's, it's all quite transient. So by the time somebody thinks I really ought to go and get this seen to, it goes again. Mm. Um, and then it can run the real risk of going uh, right underground where it's uh, not infectious anymore, and but it sits in your... Um, 
brain stem and it sits in your spinal cord and um, that's when in the old days it used to kill people. Um, you'd get um, parts of your nose and face and arms falling off and uh, yeah, used to send people mad. My great uncle actually died of syphilis. Oh, really? Yeah. Very proud of him. <laughs> Place the trail for your career. <laughs> yeah, but Napoleon died of it, Al Capone, Toulouse-Lautrec. Lots of people did, but it's a really easy treat. It's just, it's painful. It's two jabs in the bottom, um, but it's a really easy to treat. Um, it is tricky to be able to um, dis- sort of decipher from your investigations how long they've had it for. And if we don't know how long somebody's had it for, then we treat them over three weeks with the penicillin injections. Um, but generally, if people are just, uh, getting tested regularly, which is what we absolutely encourage, um, then uh, we can treat them with just one jab. Um, we think it's increasing again because of people living in remote areas. Um, it's highly prevalent in um, men who have sex with men, um, but it's also more prevalent now, unfortunately, um, in the uh, First Nations population. And if somebody um, has syphilis and they're pregnant, then it can cause congenital syphilis and unfortunately we've had a 13 deaths in the last 20 years of uh, with babies either stillborn or in the in utero from it when it is it is a preventable disease and it's something that we should you know all be trying to get tested for so if again if any of um anybody listening has a female patient who's pregnant or about re- reproductive age we really would encourage them to get um tested So, again, I guess going back to if I'm listening to this, I'm sexually active. I, you know, I always um, have the intention of making my partner wear a condom, but sometimes I drink a bit too much or we just get carried away in the moment. Just clarifying, this is a hypothetical. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's it's okay. (laughs) Absolutely hypothetical. But how, you know, like... Should I consider, you know, if I've got no symptoms but I've been sexually active, you know, I've only had a couple of partners, how prevalent are these STIs or syphilis that I actually need to understand what my risks are? They are – it's a great question and and again, because there's no symptoms, it is tricky because it's something that you forget to do, especially if you don't have any symptoms. But we recommend um, men who have sex with men that are active – super active would be about three every three months if you're having um, different sexual contacts and for uh, people who have sex with the opposite sex we recommend between every six and 12 months depending if you've got a really super high turnover every three months is a good as in rule super of thumb. High, high turnover of partners of partners yes. yes okay all right good all right so your number four is about hiv and aids the facts and the myths, and it's actually World AIDS Day today, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. So I, you know, want to preface this that I grew, you know, I was around in the 90s when, you know, AIDS became a thing and across the world there was so much fear, there was so much death, governments were so slow to act. You know, everywhere you went there was, you know, promotion of condoms, there was an awareness about HIV and AIDS, it's so interesting that my young adult sons don't have it on their radar, don't think about it. So what what are the real facts and myths in the year 2023 about HIV and AIDS? Okay. So um, 
The facts are that HIV is still um, alive and well, um, but the myths are that AIDS is alive and well. So um, HIV is the uh, human immunodeficiency virus um, and AIDS is a consequence of no treatment, um, which is final terminal, mainly terminal um, stages of the disease. We really don't see um, AIDS in Australia, um, thankfully. Uh, I, it, it's probably prevalent in other parts of the world, especially Africa, um, South America. But here it's, it's not, it's not um, something that we see regularly, thank goodness. Um, HIV is completely controllable uh, by taking, uh, in most cases, one tablet daily. That's it. And it reduces uh, the viral load, um, increases the CD4 count, and means that people can live a productive life. They can have children. Um, and if they have an undetectable viral load uh, for six months, they can't pass it on to partners at all during sex, even without a condom. So I'm heterosexual. Again, this is hypothetical, Jesse, but I'm heterosexual. I'm sexually active. I don't always you know, insist my partner wears a condom. How, how prevalent is HIV in our community and how often should all people who are sexually active, you know, keep it, keep it in mind as a real risk or concern? So um, generally um, people who have sex with um, the opposite sex um, are at lower risk. So there is a much lower risk um, and part of that is to do with um, how you can contract it and uh, we know that anal sex is one of the, um, condomless anal sex that is, um, is one of the easiest ways to contract HIV. But HIV itself is actually quite a hard um, uh, infection to catch. Um, so it is, it is less risky but it's still important to... Um, get yourself tested every six to 12 months. And it's really good to, important to have a baseline. Um, so if you get tested um, even once every 12 months, it, it does depend on how active you are sexually. The other thing that's important to bear in mind with heterosexual um, people is that you don't know, and I'm not harping back to the old advertising days of, you know, you don't know who you've slept with. There was that whole thing going on about the different beds and things. But you genuinely, and working in this environment, you genuinely don't know um, who your partners last slept with, especially with the stigma around men who have sex with men. Um, they might be very reluctant to let you know that they've had a, um, a uh, encounter with a, a partner of the same sex um, and that is a high risk higher risk um, I should say if they're not on PEP or um, PrEP or if they're not on um, any treatment for their HIV um, men who have sex with men are at higher risk as are people who use um, and inject drugs and again um, that's quite common and it's something that we ask and You'd be everybody would be amazed at the amount of people that will say yes, I do very occasionally, and they may not be as careful about um, not sharing needles as people who actually do it regularly. So even heterosexual people, it's not zero risk no. for HIV, and it's not zero risk for STI. So we, it isn't something we all need to be considering with our patients and with our own personal lives. Absolutely. So Esther, um, again, playing the ignorant here, you've mentioned PrEP a few times. Um, what, what is that and, um, yeah, and how does that affect your risk profile? 
That's a great question. Um, so PrEP is part of the HIV treatment. It was initially solely for HIV treatment and it stops um, HIV being able to replicate. So um, people who have um, are high risk, uh, we recommend that they start on, uh, on uh, PrEP. It's one tablet uh, once a day. It's mainly taken up with um, the MSM community. Um, sorry, what's MSM? Sorry, men who have sex with men. Right. Community. And um, it can be taken on demand or it can be taken every day. And if it's taken effectively every day, it can reduce your risk of HIV transmission um, by 99%. So it's really effective. And that's without using a condom, um, which is uh, means that it's very low risk of HIV transmission. But of course, people not using condoms, then syphilis goes up um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, those things go up as well. So are you saying that men who have sex with men might opt to just take a HIV prep almost prophylactically rather than take the risk of contracting HIV in the first place? Absolutely. Um, and and it's, it's readily accessible. You can get it from a GP um, and obviously we uh, prescribe it, but there's lots of online um, places now that just um, deal with prep. Uh, it's one of the best things you can do to protect yourself, especially the younger population, um, because let's face it, sadly, they're, they're the people that are having the most sex. <laughs> and, um, you know, not somebody, you know, in their 60s, although you know, I'm not ruling that out, <laughs> but um, somebody uh, who's young, they are having higher higher amounts of sex. And that is the riskiest time for them to contract something. So um, this is so effective that uh, I think... The statistics are that if we could get a million people onto PrEP, um, we would reduce HIV transmission almost altogether in Australia. Yeah, wow. And when you're saying, sadly, it's the young people having the sex, do you mean it's sadly for those of us who are older? Absolutely. Yes, I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask, Esther, you know, as I said, when I think about the 90s, the terrible shame, even for people who had contracted HIV via a blood transfusion, um, how much does HIV still attract a stigma these days? Yeah, unfortunately, there is a massive stigma still. Um, people who who do contract HIV, they have massive shame and it's not just the people who um, contracted it. And, and we do have some people that contracted it in, in the 80s and they're still with us, thank goodness. Um, but it's not just that cohort of people, it's people um, who contracted it in 2023. Um there is a perception out there that it, they're dirty, that they've been having too much sex. I don't know if you can have too much sex, but there's a perception of that. Or the wrong type of sex, and I'm using air bunnies there, the wrong type of sex, um, maybe being promiscuous or being with somebody that you shouldn't have. Um, or using IV drugs. We have some older patients who will come in and tell you straight away, I got my um, HIV from a infusion because they're still so stigmatized and it's unfortunately um we have a, have had instances of um healthcare professionals um continuing that stigma with some um awful um examples of being outed in front of lots of different people um and not all healthcare professionals do have a clear understanding um they're double gloving, they're telling people, watch out, you've got to, um, you know, this person's HIV and, and it's it's enough for them to have to live with it without us um, 
um, just reinforcing that shame for them. So I don't know if it's ever going to go. Maybe eventually it will. I don't know, and I'm not that old, but maybe in the 17th century with syphilis was the same sort of shame. I don't know, but um, I'd like to see, obviously we'd all like to see it, that it, that stigma goes, but I don't know if it ever will because the Grim Reaper, all the advertisements, it's a double-edged thing because it was really effective and you can't negate that. But at the same time, it has brought about this real stigma that, um, you know, there's something dirty about HIV that um, just doesn't carry with other chronic illnesses. So number five is hepatitis B can be prevented and hepatitis C can be treated. So I want to start with like what is hepatitis B and what is hepatitis C? Like how are they different? So um, hepatitis B and C, there's lots of diff- there's lots of different hepatitis actually. Um, there's D and D e as well, and there's A. Um, but hepatitis B and C, so both of these can be uh, transmitted through blood, and they can also be transmitted through. Um, from mum to baby, which is called vertical transmission, same as HIV and syphilis. Um, they, generally speaking, um, hepatitis C is a bit um, invisible for quite a long time and it stays invisible until a later life and then it um, becomes a real issue, whereas hepatitis B is more of a chronic issue. Um, you can clear hepatitis B yourself, um, it's unusual to clear it um, if you've been if you've had a transmission as a child, but it can happen. Um, but there is treatment to suppress the viral load, which is similar um, mechanism to the HIV medication. But there, the great thing about hepatitis B, although we can't um, treat it in every single case, we can um, prevent it with um, the immunisation scheme. So all kids, uh, babies, and children have the hepatitis B. And in sexual health services, we check regularly um, every time people come in. Basically, um, we check uh, if for the first time, we check whether they're immune or not. And if they're not immune, we encourage them to um, get their course of vaccinations. It can take a while. Some people need um, more than three vaccinations to get immune. But eventually, most of us do become immune. I had to have 11 vaccinations. Oh my yeah, I'm a bit stubborn, me, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, so so there is, um, and once you're immune, you're you're always immune. So that's um, that's really good. And the hepatitis C used to be um, a really difficult one to treat. It was IV infusions over a long um, amount of time. It was really um, made people feel terrible, uh, sort of almost akin to chemotherapy. Mm. Um, but that has all changed now. And once um, it's been identified that somebody's got hepatitis C, it's generally um, a course of tablets over 12 weeks, and then it's eradicated. Uh, the thing with hep C is that even if um, it is eradicated, it will always, it's like a footprint in the sand, it will always show up in your blood test that you've had it, um, but it that doesn't mean it hasn't been eradicated. We just um, check the RNA viral load and generally that will say negative and they're done and dusted. And is hepatitis B and C considered a sexually transmitted infection? That's, that's a really good question. There are um, some instances and that does seem to be increasing a bit um, and I think they're doing quite a lot of research into why that's happening um, but it is with um, mainly IV drug use and or um, vertical transmission between mother and child and, and from overseas where they don't have um, Hep B pro, uh, vaccination programs we do see that as well. 
And what happens, like why is hepatitis B and or C dangerous for us? So long term, um, it can cause significant damage to your liver um, and it increases um, a high risk of uh, liver cancer. So people who, um, even if they've cleared um, some uh, either of the hepatitis, depending on what their blood results are and what their liver function tests have been like, whether they've developed fibrosis um, or cirrhosis, they have to undergo uh, monitoring for uh, liver cancer for the rest of their lives, which is, you know, every six months. That's a, that's a big chunk of ultrasound to have every six months. Yeah. That's a great spot for a plug back to our episode with Olivia Cullen on five things about the liver. Yes. Mm. It's a wonderful organ, the liver. We need to look after it. Okay. I'm going to try and summarise everything you've just taught us about sexual health. So number one, what is sexual health and why is it relevant to the bedside nurse? And I guess um, what you were saying is sexual health is about the infection prevention, infection control, um, infection education and the blood-borne viruses that are spread either sexually or through IV drug use. Absolutely. And I guess why it's relevant to the bedside nurse is because professionally nurses are often the only people who might have the courage or the foresight to ask people about their sexual health. Or the context and opportunity as well. Yeah, yeah. yep, um, to ask. And personally, it's because hopefully most of our listeners are sexually active and so having a screening every year should be part of a general health follow-up anyway. Absolutely. If you're changing partners, absolutely. Even if you're not changing partners because we would like to think that everybody is faithful but that's not always the case. That's very true. <laughs> All right. Number two was that most STIs have no symptoms. And so you were saying this is really tricky because most of these sexually transmitted um, infections can actually lie dormant, have no symptoms. We don't know if we're carriers. We don't know if we're spreading. We don't know if we're at risk. But you were saying there are some serious long-term health consequences for a number of these um, infections if they're not treated. And the one that really stood out for me was chlamydia and infertility but certainly for syphilis, for all of them, they can have long-term health consequences. So it's really important that screening is used because we may not have any physical symptoms. Absolutely, yep. Number three is syphilis is on the rise. And so you talked to us about, um, you know, that syphilis was has a, is the longest sexual, known sexual infection um, that has existed and it usually presents initially as an ulcer and it's tricky because it can present in the mouth or in the genitals and we think, oh, we need to do something about that and then it disappears, that it's often like a hidden kind of um, infection and that it can present as a rash and then we think, oh, we need to do something about that and it disappears. But syphilis can be extremely dangerous long-term and one of the biggest concerns is also congenital syphilis and the impact it can have on the unborn child. Um, the good news is, is that once it's detected, it can be easily treated with a penicillin injection or, you know, a course of that. Number four was HIV AIDS, the facts and the myths. And I guess what I really took home is that HIV as a virus is still very much a thing in our community and that there are populations, particularly men who have sex with men who remain vulnerable to this virus but that AIDS, which is the consequence of no treatment of HIV, so that's an important um, distinction, really doesn't exist anymore because 
we can be so proactive about preventing HIV using PrEP, which is the HIV treatment, and that some uh, men who have sex with men uh, just choose to be on this PrEP prophylactically, which really helps reduce HIV, um, and that when people have HIV, when they take their meds, which might be one tablet a day, it really means it's no longer a huge issue. Absolutely. <laughs> like, um, so the stigma that has, I guess, remained in around HIV and that people are promiscuous or that they have to be gay or any of those things, it's quite, it's quite ridiculous because if you have HIV and you're being treated, um, while we recommend always still using a condom, uh, particularly if you're changing partners regularly, um, you, it's, it's almost impossible to even spread HIV once you're on PrEP. Is that right? Uh, once you're on HIV medication, yep. absolutely. Um, it, as long as your viral load is undetectable, it's, it's very, very hard um, to transmit. And a lot of healthcare issues are a consequence of our lifestyles and um, that's just the way human beings are. And it's, it's uh, such an unfair thing to pick out one certain infection against everything else from... Um, smoking to driving too fast to all sorts of different things um yeah so it would be lovely if that stigma was reduced especially in the healthcare setting where people should feel safe yeah terrific and number five is hepatitis b can be prevented and hepatitis c can be treated and you explained to us that there's a whole range of hepatitises with letters from the alphabet but the reason that we focus on hepatitis B and hepatitis C is that they are transmitted mainly by blood. And while that can be a sexually uh, transmitted infection, that it's mainly often due to sharing of needles with IV um, use, which is more prevalent than people would believe. And the reason we really need to get on top of this is that hepatitis can cause uh, liver damage and in and in some cases it makes you much more likely to contract uh, liver cancers um, and also you know we need to be mindful that again hepatitis can be transferred to from mothers to unborn children and can become a chronic illness absolutely but the good news is we have immunizations for hepatitis b and uh, luckily in australia we're very fortunate that lots of people can receive that vaccination uh, yep that's entirely true I think that's a wrap from us, Esther. What a fantastic podcast. So thank you very much for joining us on Five Things and talking all things sexual health. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's Inject 
underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 